Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit saymythyroid.com forward slash peptides. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and when dealing with Graves' disease, you want to find and remove immune system triggers as well as heal the gut, which is what this episode is all about. Now, just to warn you, during this episode, I spent a lot more time discussing the 5R protocol and gut healing than the actual triggers, but I do plan on dedicating future episodes to each of the different triggers. If I went into detail with each of the triggers in a single episode, it would be way too long. Anyway, I hope you find the information to be valuable, and let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. Welcome back to the Save My Thyroid podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Osansky, and in this episode, I'm going to discuss Graves' disease triggers, and I'm going to tie this into the triad of autoimmunity and the 5R protocol. So let's begin by discussing the triad of autoimmunity. So the triad of autoimmunity, there's three components necessary for autoimmunity to develop according to this triad. So component number one is a genetic predisposition. And the good news is that while genetics is a factor in the development of conditions such as Graves' disease, the other two factors I'm about to mention are even greater factors. And so factor number two is exposure to one or more environmental triggers. And I will be discussing some of the different triggers associated with Graves' disease as well as other autoimmune conditions shortly. And then the third component of the triad is an increase in intestinal permeability, which is also known as a leaky gut. So again, according to this triad of autoimmunity, you need all three of these factors in order for autoimmunity to develop. Next, I'd like to discuss the four main categories of triggers. The first category is food, and certain food allergens can be potential triggers of autoimmunity, and this includes gluten, dairy, corn, and salt. So in the research, salt also is associated with an increase in Th17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. And I commonly recommend some natural sea salt, so I'm not saying you have to completely avoid salt. But the problem is if you're eating a lot of packaged foods, processed foods, all these include salt. So most people eat too much salt, and they associate salt with an increased risk of high blood pressure, which that could be the case too. And so what I would just recommend is try to eat whole, healthy foods. And again, a little bit of sea salt, like some Celtic sea salt, usually isn't a problem in most people. So category number two, stress. And of course, we all deal with stress. And there's both emotional as well as physical stressors. We're not going to completely eliminate the stress from our life, at least most of us. I know I'm not going to be able to to do that. That's why you want to try to do everything you can to improve your stress handling skills. And of course, if you can minimize the stressors, that'd be great to reduce the number of stressors. 
The third category of triggers includes chemicals. And we definitely live in a toxic world. And just as the case with stress, we can't eliminate the stress from our lives. Well, unfortunately, we can't eliminate all the chemicals that we're exposed to just because there's so many. And some examples of chemicals, not all chemicals necessarily trigger autoimmunity, but according to the research, mercury, bisphenol A, also known as BPA, breast implants. So I can't say breast implants. I don't think in the research there's any association with breast implants and autoimmunity, but I have seen some of my patients where breast implants could be a potential trigger. And I know other healthcare practitioners as well. So just because something is not in the research doesn't mean it can't be a trigger. And maybe it is in the research, but I just haven't seen the research as far as it being a potential autoimmune trigger, but just from the experience of others. And then there's other environmental toxins, which can also be a factor. So not just the ones that I mentioned here. The fourth category of triggers includes infections, and there's many different types of infections, including gut infections such as H. pylori or Yersinia enterocolitica, viruses such as Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, and then stealth infections such as Lyme disease and Bartonella. So these also could be potential triggers as well. So I'd like to briefly discuss the autoimmunity timeline. So With autoimmunity, it's not like you're just exposed to a trigger and then the next day you develop autoimmunity. First of all, you have different stages. So stage number one is the pre-autoimmune stage, and this is what takes place before you develop autoimmunity. So just these are like the predisposing factors, and it could go way back to being a, a baby or child where you have a history of antibiotics or even even the birth process, like if you were born via a C-section or like myself, bottle fed instead of breastfed. So all these could set the stage. I'm not saying if you were bottle fed or if you were born via C-section that you are going to develop autoimmunity, but this can affect your gut microbiome and lead to a decrease in what's called immune tolerance and over the years set the stage for you developing an autoimmune condition And so stage number two is the silent autoimmune stage. So in this stage, the autoimmune process has already started, but there has been little or no tissue damage. So the pre-autoimmune stage, again, that's before you're exposed to the trigger, but maybe you're developing dysbiosis of the gut, a leaky gut, one of the the factors in the trial of autoimmunity. And so in that silent autoimmune phase, you have already been exposed to one or more triggers. So again, the autoimmune process has started but you're not experiencing any symptoms just because there's been very little tissue damage. If you did a blood test, you might see antibodies in the case of Graves or Hashimoto's elevated thyroid antibodies. But again, the symptoms probably are not going to be present at this stage. And and you might not see the antibodies yet, even with the silent autoimmunity. But with stage number three, symptoms are present with some tissue damage, This is when the autoimmune condition starts becoming more advanced and the person starts experiencing symptoms. So if for any reason the antibodies didn't show up in stage two, there's a greater chance of them showing up in stage number three. I should mention some people will just have negative antibodies, even those with Graves' disease and other autoimmune conditions. So we can't just rely on antibodies, but for those who develop antibodies, usually they'll be present in either stage two or stage three along with symptoms developing in stage number three. 
And then stage number four, this is where symptoms are present and there is a greater amount of tissue loss. And so in stage number four, this is when the person's symptoms will usually get even worse and there's greater tissue loss. And again, in the case of Graves' disease, the thyroid blood tests are positive. And again, they might start becoming positive in stage number three as far as the thyroid panel. So I mentioned the autoantibodies, typically the autoantibodies in Graves' disease, they'll be positive before the thyroid hormone levels in the TSH is affected. So those antibodies can be elevated as early as stage number two many times not until stage number three of doing a blood test. And as far as the thyroid hormone levels and TSH, again, sometimes they could start changing in stage number three, but definitely by stage number four, we'll see the, the thyroid blood test being positive, elevated thyroid hormone levels in the case of Graves' disease, depressed TSH levels. All right, so now I would like to discuss the 5R protocol. And so the 5R protocol, this is important to have a healthy gut microbiome. So once again, part of that triad of autoimmunity is uh, an increase in intestinal permeability, which is a leaky gut. So in order to heal the gut, you need to incorporate the 5R protocol. So it's not just about finding and removing triggers, but also incorporating this 5R protocol. So the first component of the 5R protocol is remove, and second is replace. Third is re-inoculate fourth is repair, and fifth is rebalance. So we're going to go and discuss these in further detail. So as far as remove, so in order to develop autoimmunity, once again, exposure to one or more environmental triggers is required, and it's necessary to find and remove the trigger in order to reverse the autoimmune component. And when I say reverse autoimmune component, I'm not suggesting that we could permanently cure autoimmunity. I've been in remission from Graves' disease since 2009, and I feel like I've been cured, but there's still that genetic predisposition. Again, there's always a chance even myself could relapse. I mean, some people you might hear will have like autoimmune flares, but if you're in remission and maintaining a state of wellness, then ideally you shouldn't have those flares. But again, I don't like to use the word cure. I like to use the term permanent remission. But either way, you, you need to find or remove the trigger in order to achieve that state of permanent remission. And the same is true when it comes to healing a leaky gut. So you need to find and remove the leaky gut trigger. And so it's not always easy to find out what the leaky gut trigger is. So some of the factors which can cause a leaky gut are similar to the factors that could directly trigger autoimmunity trigger a condition such as Graves' disease. So there's food allergens such as gluten, corn oil. Red wine is not necessarily a trigger of autoimmunity, but it can increase intestinal permeability. So I classify it at, or label it as, as a potential leaky gut trigger. And then there's infections. So again, certain infections can be a trigger of autoimmunity such as Graves' disease. So H. pylori I mentioned earlier, which is a bacteria that's in the gut. Blastocystis hominis, which is a type of parasite, and also giardia. Candida, SIBO. So candida is not an infection, and there's no evidence I know of where it could directly trigger autoimmunity, but it can potentially increase intestinal permeability. So candida overgrowth, candida is normal in the body. So again, not um, I don't label it as a candida infection. Same thing with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That's too much bacteria in the wrong place, which is in a small intestine. So these aren't candida overgrowth and SIBO aren't infections, but they can cause a leaky gut. 
And so I classify these as leaky gut triggers as well. And then certain medications. So NSAIDs, antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, these all can potentially cause a leaky gut. And I also did some research, which I'll be presenting in a future podcast episode, where unfortunately, antithyroid medication, specifically methimazole and PTU, at least the research study, doesn't mean that other types of antithyroid medication, such as carbimazole, cannot cause a leaky gut, but the research focused on methimazole and PTU and showed that these also can cause a leaky gut as well. So there is a time and place. I'm not telling people that they should stop these. I'm just mentioning it because it can negatively affect the gut. Stress could potentially be a factor with the leaky gut. And then even systemic inflammation, having a lot of inflammation can also be a factor with the leaky gut. I'm spending a lot of time on the remove part of the 5-hour protocol because many people skip over this part. They'll take probiotics and digestive enzymes and do things for gut repair, which I'm going to briefly discuss soon, but they don't do anything to remove the factor that's causing the leaky gut. All these are important, of course, but definitely don't skip over the first R, which is remove. So the second component of the 5R protocol is replace. So you might need to replace certain things such as digestive enzymes, gastric acid, so betaine HCL, or again, maybe you could take some bitters, digestive bitters, or some apple cider vinegar to stimulate your own body's production of stomach acid. Hydrochloric acid activates pepsinogen into pepsin, which breaks down proteins. So you not only need digestive enzymes to break down protein, but also sufficient hydrochloric acid. And then um, bile salts you might have to replace. Some people might take ox bile, for example. Dietary fiber is also something that some people might need to replace. Of course, you want to try to do as much as you can. With all these that I mentioned, try to do as much as you can through diet and not supplement with everything, but there is a time and place for supplementation. So the next R, the third R of the 5R protocol is re-inoculate. Once again, you want to try to do as much as you can through diet. So probiotics, I, I do like probiotic supplements and commonly recommend them, but you could also do things through diet, such as fermented foods, sauerkraut, kimchi, even kombucha. And as far as why do we have to re-inoculate, well, unfortunately, just this toxic world is one reason, just because the, the toxins, things like glyphosate, for example, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, kills off the good bacteria. So we, we need to, again, try to do as much as we can through diet, but I think supplementation could be beneficial. And I mentioned medications that could also have a negative effect on the gut microbiome. So I think that just about everybody needs to re-inoculate. And that doesn't mean that everybody needs to do it through supplements, but at least at the very least do it through food. You, of course, can re-inoculate through both diet and supplementation. So that is an option. When it comes to discussing probiotics, I want to expand a little bit. And again, the food sources of probiotics include sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, yogurt. If you're following a paleo or autoimmune paleo diet and try to avoid dairy, then you probably just want to eat something like coconut kefir, not, not dairy kefir. Same thing with yogurt, not non-dairy yogurt, such as coconut yogurt. I mentioned earlier that I recommend getting probiotics from both supplements and food sources. There are some people who absolutely don't 
once you get them from food sources just because they might not like sauerkraut or kimchi or just the inconvenience, even though you don't have to necessarily make your own sauerkraut or kimchi or kombucha. And then there's also soil-based probiotics such as Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus coagulans, not as much research on the soil-based probiotics, but there are some people that swear by them where they take it and they notice a great difference. And then there are some people who take them and don't notice much of a difference. And that goes with regular probiotic supplements too that have lactobacillus, bifidobacterium. There are some people that notice a huge impact on their health when they take probiotics. And then there are others who don't really notice much of a difference. Another option, fecal microbiota transplant. So that's a little bit extreme and most people don't need those. I did have one patient who got that done by a practitioner in Florida. Now in the United States, as of recording this, it's only approved for C. diff, Clostridia difficile. The patient didn't have C. diff, but she wants a practitioner who does fecal microbiota transplants for other conditions as well. I mean, as far as I understand, I don't think the practitioner will do it for everyone. It really depends on the person. And then also, I need to mention prebiotics because there are limitations with probiotics. Like when you purchase a probiotic supplement, there's only going to be a few different, ideally strains. You want to try to get strain-specific probiotics because uh, because a lot of probiotic supplements just list the species. But either way, there's only going to be 10 to 15 species or strains of probiotics in many probiotic supplements, sometimes less than that. But there are a lot more of those species and strains in our gut. So prebiotics are beneficial because they feed the the probiotics. And again, you want to try to do as much as you can through diet, but sometimes you could also supplement taking things such as inulin or acacia fiber. So now let's discuss repair which is the fourth component of the 5R protocol. So I discussed the leaky gut earlier, and this occurs when the tight junctions of the small intestine become compromised. And so there's different ways of testing for a leaky gut. I don't do a whole lot of testing. In the past, I did testing. I I used a test called the intestinal permeability antigenic screen, I believe is what it's called, from Cyrex Labs. I just refer to it as their array number two. They have different arrays. So array number two is Cyrex Labs, their leaky gut test. There's also the lactulose mannitol test. And there's other ways to measure leaky gut. Some stool panels look at zonulin, which I don't think is too accurate, but that is another method. And I think the array number two is pretty good. But I just feel that most people don't need to spend a few hundred dollars to determine if they have a leaky gut. There are benefits. One benefit is not only do you know if you have a leaky gut, but you have a baseline and then you can retest, but not everybody has the money to spend on all these tests. I assume most people have a leaky gut. And the reason for that is because when I used to do leaky gut testing on many patients, I found that most people did test positive for a leaky gut. So rather than have everybody get a leaky gut test, I just assume they have a leaky gut but you do have the option if you want to test. And then the lactulose mannitol test is a urine test. If you have high levels of lactulose in the urine, that's indicative of a leaky gut. When it comes to repairing, a lot of people take supplements and that definitely is an option. But I would say try to do a combination. Try to do as much as you can through diet. But if you're going to do supplements, you want to do both. You don't want to just rely on the supplements. And some examples of supplements that can help support the gut and heal the gut include L-glutamine, vitamin A, zinc. And then there's demulcents such as slippery elm, DGL licorice, marshmallow root. So these uh, also support the gut mucosa. 
And then you could also do certain things through the diet, drinking bone broth. If you're a vegan vegetarian, uh, cabbage juice, drinking cabbage juice, fermented foods also could support gut healing. The fifth and final component of the 5-Hour Protocol is rebalance. So and this relates to rebalancing the parasympathetic nervous system. You have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is known as the fight or flight system, whereas the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest. So you want to do everything you can to activate that parasympathetic nervous system. And you're going to rebalance your body through sleep, stress management, Again, stress management, I I can't stress enough how important stress management is, just blocking out time on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be an hour or two per day, even though some choose to do that. But even if you're blocking out five, 10 minutes per day, I I commonly recommend starting with five minutes per day just to get into the routine of managing stress. Proper sleep is, again, essential for healing and especially for a healthy parasympathetic nervous system. And then also you might want to incorporate certain vagus nerve exercises. Some examples include two minutes of vigorous gargling, hot and cold showers, singing loud, either in the shower or it could be somewhere else in your car or anywhere, coffee enemas. Someone to follow is Dr. Tatis Karazian, D-A-T-I-S, Karazian, K-H-A-R-R-A-Z-I-A-N. Actually, he's the one that taught me about the vagus nerve exercises And so he has a lot of knowledge when it comes to rebalancing parasympathetic nervous system. Also has a great book on the brain, a very big book, a very thick book on the brain that if you're interested, you might want to check out as well. So you might be wondering, can you address more than one of these components separately? Like, do you have to do one R at a time, like the first R, the remove, and then move on to replace and re-inoculate? The good news is that it isn't necessary to focus on each of these components one at a time. You can do them all at once. I'll just say, make sure you focus enough time on the remove component, because as I mentioned before, many people just jump into taking digestive enzymes and probiotics and L-glutamine, and they really don't end up finding what's causing the, the leaky gut trigger. So make sure that you address all five of these that I mentioned there. They're all pretty important. All right, so that is pretty much what I want to discuss, but I want to go ahead and give some action steps. Of course, you want to start with diet and lifestyle, eat a healthy diet consisting of whole healthy foods. And I would refer to episode number four, where I discussed hyperthyroid diet tips. Incorporate mind-body medicine on a regular basis. Again, maybe start with five minutes of yoga or meditation, deep breathing, just choose something and do it every day. And you don't have to use the same technique. You can mix things up. But the point is try to get into that routine and doing things to reduce your toxic load. So I mentioned earlier how we live in a toxic world. So you want to do as much as you can, trying to do as much through diet, of course, eating mostly organic, but then also using natural cleaners and cosmetics in your home, purifying your water as well as your air, getting like an air purifier and then a water filter. Or you could also buy like Mountain Valley Springs, which is spring water out of a glass bottle. You want to do as much as you can to get that toxic load down. And there's other methods, which I'll discuss in future episodes, such as infrared saunas, doing things to sweat out the toxins. Also, maintain healthy vitamin D levels is 
very important just for overall immune system health and again, reducing inflammation. So it's not just about bone health and you can easily test vitamin D in the blood. I would recommend the 25-OH or 25-hydroxy vitamin D test. We didn't discuss testing to detect triggers just because I think this is best saved for a future episode talking about testing to detect certain triggers at least that's the approach I take. There are some practitioners that might not take this approach. Every practitioner has different approaches, but many do test. And I'm one of those who like to test rather than guess. And again, I'll elaborate more in a future episode. And then you want to incorporate the 5R protocols. As I mentioned, part of that triad of autoimmunity is an increase in intestinal permeability, that leaky gut So you want to follow the recommendations I gave when it comes to the 5R protocol. So again, find and remove that leaky gut trigger and then replace if necessary. Re-inoculate with prebiotics and probiotics. Repair either through supplementation or diet or both. And then rebalance that parasympathetic nervous system. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you learned a lot when it comes to Graves' disease triggers as well as the 5R protocol. Now, when it comes to the triggers, I admit that I didn't go real deep into the different triggers such as food triggers and stress and chemicals and infections. So I will be dedicating future episodes where I have episodes dedicated to just food triggers and and just to stress and just to chemicals and just to infections. So this episode would have been super long if I went deep into each of these. So this really is an overview when it comes to the different triggers. And hopefully you still found it to be beneficial as well as my discussion on the 5-Hour Protocol. Thanks again for tuning in and I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And if you'd like to connect with others with hyperthyroidism who are also trying to save their thyroid, you can join Dr. Eric's hyperthyroid healing community at hyperthyroidgroup.com. I can't get no satisfaction i can't get no satisfaction cause i try and i try and i try and i try i can't get no in case you're wondering i'm just trying to stimulate my vagus nerve I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.